Hello, and welcome to the Restory Care Editor's Commentary Podcast for October of 2019. The Editor's Choice for October evaluates two methods of lung expansion therapy in subjects following upper abdominal surgery. Rowley and colleagues randomized subjects to receive incentive spirometry or positive airway pressure therapy three times a day for five days following surgery. The main outcomes were postoperative pulmonary complications and changes in end expiratory lung impedance. There were no differences in pulmonary complications or hospital length of stay. Importantly, there were no differences in end expiratory lung impedance change with either therapy. A criticism of this work is the lack of a control group randomized simply to up and out of bed. For years, respiratory therapists have used percussion and postural drainage or incentive spirometry as the standard of care when in fact the evidence is sorely lacking that those two therapies provide any benefit whatsoever um, in the postoperative pulmonary patient. Piriano highlights this inconvenient truth that most therapies aimed at improving lung aeration following surgery provide short-lived changes that fail to result in meaningful clinical outcomes. Future trials should always have a control group where therapy is simply early mobility to include moving from the bed to a chair, followed by ambulation. Smallwood et al. described the impact of PEEP changes on oxygenation in pediatric subjects requiring mechanical ventilation. They defied subjects as responders if the SpO2 to FiO2 ratio increased and as non-responders if SpO2 FiO2 ratio decreased. PEEP changes in either direction only had the desired effect in a little over half the cases. They concluded that PEEP titration often fails to produce the desired results and that PEEP response may require individual assessment. This trial extracts data from the medical record and is limited by knowing the reasoning behind each PEEP change. You can imagine a time where you might change the PEEP as an an attempt to reduce hemodynamic interference or to improve lung compliance without being concerned about oxygenation. Strabe and colleagues suggest that stratification of subjects based on severity of hypoxemia may have improved the anticipated oxygen response to PEEP. Bellow and others evaluated the impact of thyroid hormone treatment on diaphragmatic efficiency in mechanically ventilated subjects. All subjects had non-thyroidal illness and had failed a spontaneous breathing trial. Following treatment with thyroid hormone replacement, diaphragmatic function was measured. They concluded that thyroid hormone replacement treatment did not benefit respiratory muscle function and that restoring normal levels of serum thyroid hormones is debatable. Schmidt provides expert commentary on the strengths and weaknesses of this trial, agreeing that in the absence of a measurable physiologic change, further trials of thyroid replacement in ventilated patients don't appear to be warranted. Fujimoto et al. compared end tidal CO2 measurements in non-intubated patients to arterial venous and transcutaneous measurements of CO2. They studied 18 subjects with hypoxemic and hypercarbic respiratory failure and found that at best, transcutaneous CO2 could estimate arterial CO2. However, the limits of agreement were wide, making end tidal CO2 more appropriate as a trend monitor. Schreiber and colleagues evaluated the impact of heated humidifiers and heat and moisture exchangers on gas exchange and the indices of respiratory work in mechanically ventilated subjects with a tracheostomy. HMEs were associated with higher pressure time product, higher PCO2, and lower pH, as well as worsening dyspnea scores. These findings confirm previous work that additional dead space created by the HME can have negative consequences in select patients. Said and others compared drug delivery from two different beclomethasone inhaler spacer co- combinations. In a group of healthy volunteers, they measured urinary beclomethasone and drug retained in the spacer. They found that the use of spacers with the 
with a beclometasone inhaler reduced impaction and drug de deposition in the upper airway. An improved lung de deposition was achieved with non-rinse spacers compared to spacers rinsed with water. High flow nasal cannula use has increased dramatically in the last decade. Garofalo et al. tested a combined high flow nasal cannula and helmet CPAP system in healthy volunteers. They found that the system was well tolerated and measures of pharyngeal airway pressures were similar. The clinical utility of this technique remains to be determined. Igefor et al. evaluated the PEEP effect of high flow nasal cannula in a pediatric model. Using airway models created from a 3D printer and a lung model, they compared flows from 6 to 60 liters a minute. They noted that increasing flow increased PEEP, while leak in larger nary size related to the model age resulted in a decrease in PEEP. These findings also support previous work. Patients often fail to use inhalers in an optimal fashion despite educational efforts. Dabrasco et al. evaluated a single session of inhaler technique training on inhalation errors. Follow-up was completed at three and six months. They found that a single inhalation training reduced the number of errors made, but did not influence the course of asthma and COPD. The effect of a single inhalation technique training was short-lived. The sit-to-stand test evaluates the strength of the lower limbs and is impaired in individuals with muscle wasting. In a group of subjects with COPD, Zanini et al. evaluated the 30-second sit-to-stand test and correlated the findings to traditional measures before and after pulmonary rehabilitation. They reported that in stable subjects with moderate to severe COPD, the sit-to-stand test was a sensitive tool for assessing the success of pulmonary rehab. Tony and colleagues compared the management of pediatric subjects with bronchiolitis in two one-year time frames, five years apart. This retrospective single-center trial found that high-flow nasal cannula use before ICU admission was much more frequent in the later time period. There was also an increase in the use and success of NIV with a total face mask. High-flow nasal cannula did not independently prevent invasive ventilation. Demar Dzisky et al. described the use of SPF O2 FiO2 ratio as a predictor for early hemodynamic deterioration in subjects with acute pulmonary embolism. In this retrospective chart review, they found that an initial SpO2 FiO2 predicted hemodynamic deterioration with a sensitivity of 74% and specificity of 88%. Monitoring SpO2 FiO2 ratio in this population may allow for early intervention or prevention. Determination of the appropriate time for ventilator liberation remains an important goal in the ICU. Gomerez et al. evaluated the weekly measurement of the timed inspiratory effort index to predict successful ventilator liberation following prolonged mechanical ventilation. In this prospective observational trial, the TIE index greater than a centimeter of water per second was associated with liberation success. O'Driscoll and Smith provide an invited review of oxygen use in critical illness. The authors are the architects of the British Thoracic Society guidelines on oxygen therapy and bring to the forefront the need for targeted oxygen delivery and the avoidance of hyperoxia in all patient populations. Scott and others provide a narrative review of ventilator alarms and alarm fatigue. This is an area that's poorly understood and rarely studied. The authors pr propose some priorities for future research. We appreciate your attending the Respiratory Care Podcast. To receive the content of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues. Thank you.